Hello, Mead friends. Welcome to the very first episode of Mead Mirth. Or Mirth Mead. No, Mead Mirth is better. Yeah, I'm sticking with Mead Mirth. Or maybe it should be Mead Mirth Mead. I'm sure I'll figure it out. My name is Brandon Tice, and I'll be your host for this Meaty Murthy podcast of Ear Candy. Today, we sit down with Frank Goldbeck, who is the founder of Golden Coast Mead. We talk about his origin story and his journey through life that eventually led him to opening up a meadery. This will be a two-part episode. The first one covers the journey Frank took to get to opening the Golden Coast Mead. Part two will be about the journey Golden Coast Mead has been through these past 11 years to bring us to present-day Golden Coast Mead. Thank you for listening. Now, please enjoy Frank and his wonderful journey. Meet out. Hello, Frank. Hey, Brando. All right. We're here to talk about Golden Coast Mead and Frank Goldbeck. Frank, our first question for you today is, where... Where did you grow up and like, what's your life story? Let's get you to your founding of Golden Coast Mead. Ah, thanks, man. So I grew up in Orange County, Southern California, um, mostly Costa Mesa, Newport Beach. Went to elementary school in Corona Del Mar. Went to uh, middle school at Ensign Middle School in Newport Beach. And then went to high school at Newport Harbor High School. I got to grow up surfing and playing baseball and uh, later on lacrosse. Got to get involved with my school early on, uh, starting Earth Resource Foundation, which was a group that came together to clean up beaches and educate about environmental awareness in my high school. How how old were you when you started that? I was a sophomore in high school, so I was 14 turning 15. What inspired joining that? Yep. Um, A friend of mine and I were at the beach and there was a trash can and there was all this trash right next to the trash can. And we were just so bummed. (laughs) Like, why didn't people get the the little extra effort to throw the trash in the trash can would mean a clean beach and a healthier ecosystem and uh, happier, healthier people. I'd also, as a, I think, eighth grader, um, or seventh grader caught a fungus uh, while surfing off uh, the coast of Newport Beach, and yeah, and it made me aware of uh, waterborne illnesses uh, that are the result of pollution, and I just got um, aware that if I wanted to enjoy this beautiful place that I was lucky enough to live in. Um, I wanted it to be clean and I wanted other people to have that opportunity and be aware of um, what a gift this, this beautiful place was that I grew up in and was able to enjoy so much. And so wanted it to be available for others. So that's why we started our three source foundation. And uh, then we started the lacrosse team junior year and senior year um, because we wanted to play a sport that was really active and uh, wasn't yet a, institution at Newport Harbor but apparently now it's the largest sports program in the school Uh, when you combine the boys and the girls team it's bigger than football and water polo and that's pretty cool um where'd you like learn to play lacrosse where did that come from uh, my stepdad went to boarding school out in Chicago in the 60s early 70s and um, he got to play with a lot of the military kids who grew up on the east coast and he just loved the game and would tell us about it 
and um, he'd come to my baseball games where I was catcher and then ultimately right field as I got bigger and he was like man watching you play right field is pretty boring catcher was a lot more exciting you know what's more exciting than watching you be in right field and catcher lacrosse and then he'd tell us stories about getting to run around and hit each other with sticks and throw a ball through the air and how the Native Americans considered it the little brother of war and was a way to train warriors and celebrate um, culture and just a, a wonderful game and so I caught my interests and found some sticks at a sporting goods shop um, early on in junior year and petitioned the administration at school to let us start a club and found a teacher that was ready to support us and put together a program um, where we were able to play against other teams that year, junior year, and then had a varsity program senior year. So it was a, it was a lot of fun, and I learned in doing it, which I guess is a bit of a theme in my life, um, learning by doing. Yeah, so, I'm about to point out, you, you had a couple of early leadership projects that you started that is super interesting, where you just kind of went for it and were successful. With a lot of help and a lot of support, you know, Earth Resource Foundation, there was an executive director of a nonprofit called Earth Resource Foundation. Her name was Stephanie Barger. And she said, hey, if you want to start a, an environment club, we'll support you. And we'll just call it Earth Resource Foundation High School Edition. And at one point, I think there were eight chapters across um, different high schools in Southern California. Oh, and wow. they were all doing coordinated work. And then same with the, the high school lacrosse team. If it wasn't for Jim Caldwell, the uh, teacher who took on our uh, responsibility as a faculty member associated with the club. And he had played lacrosse in college, so he was passionate about it. He, you know, we wouldn't have had the administrative support to, to make it happen. And then there was some divine intervention there, too. We were looking for a coach, and I had brought sticks to school to do a little demonstration to recruit people for the team. And as I'm walking from my car to the school I passed this apartment complex and this guy's looking out the window and he's like hey you guys playing lacrosse at the high school I'm like well we're just starting a team and he's like oh you need a coach I said uh maybe and so he turned out to be our coach for the first few years Mark Mangi which is pretty rad so yeah a lot of support um and same with you know, things that happened later on. I, I was a uh, junior class president and student body president in high school as well, um, which I'm still proud of all these years later. And uh, then I got an ROTC scholarship to go to UC Berkeley and uh, become a, an officer in the military. I had applied to be a Marine Corps officer, but um, junior year of college, the summer after junior year, I went off to officer candidate school and failed gloriously. I uh, fell asleep during the field training exercise where they're like really testing your leadership abilities. We were in a grassy field and there were like literally explosions. And my squad mates are like, where's Goldbeck? And they like run back to this position we'd been in. And I was just laying there in the grass, taking a nice nap. <laughs> so let's pause there what's your explanation for that little nap oh man i was just totally sleep deprived um because okay. i i think my my head space was just not what it needed to be uh, to succeed in that goal of becoming a marine corps officer um 
I like kind of questioned everything and had to come up with my own story of it to make it make sense when like stuff just didn't make sense there. And okay. um, I think I put out a lot more energy doing that than a lot of my peers did. Um, so I just slept less and less trying to make up more and more. Do you and, remember uh, the mental gymnastics you were doing? What was that like? Oh, what, man. what was the, what were you caught up on? Yeah. So just in the first uh, day of arrival, there's this kind of like hazing rite of passage where they make you dump out your sea bag, which has all your stuff in it to make sure that you have all the gear you need, you know, to accomplish everything you're going to do. But it's like this intense situation where there's like these drill instructor or Marine officer instructors running around yelling at all these, you know, 19, 20, 21 year old kids. And uh, I guess we're all 20 to 22, pretty much. There's a few older guys, but everyone's at least 20. Um, so they're running around and we're all getting yelled at and dr- dumping out our stuff. And like in the course of this, there's just a bunch of stuff that gets kind of like lost in the shuffle and it becomes this big pile. And so the first night I take it upon myself to like organize and return all of these pieces to the other folks in my platoon or Mm -hmm. company. And, um, you know, thinking back on the whole experience, that kind of typified where I was coming from was like constantly trying to do more than was necessary Mm -hmm. to like, create the the sense of unit cohesion that I thought was going to be good for all of us. But in the end, like it felt like the Marine Corps wanted folks who just like got the job done, didn't ask too many questions. And I was in there, you know, asking a bunch of unnecessary questions internally and trying to do things that no one told me to do, which, you know, isn't really what the Marine Corps needs. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you were too curious with the marine corps i think i was uh you know i would characterize the guys who succeeded as guys who saw what needed to get done and got it done super efficiently you know whereas i was like well in the best world i think this would happen so i'm gonna go make this happen and they'd be like what the fuck are you doing and i'd be like oh uh i'm not supposed to be doing this right now and they'd be like no you know (laughs) um so then I got to come back and uh, uh, make the case to switch my scholarship over to a Navy scholarship, which was ultimately a much better fit. And uh, even though I had to like jam a couple years worth of work into my last year at Cal, I was able to graduate on time and get commissioned as a Navy. Um, Awesome. So let's pause right there and let's look back at just from that point what were some like major leadership lessons you felt like you had learned up to that point that like you've taken with you in the rest of your journey? Yeah. One of the things that I loved about my college experience was being able to walk this line between these two very different worlds. On the one hand, I had military ROTC leadership training um, as, as a requirement to graduate and get my commission, Mm -hmm. Uh, which there's a bit of a backstory there and that, I was a junior in high school when September 11th happened. So my reaction to September 11th as a junior in high school was, wait, we're going to go to war to prove that going to the killing people is bad. You know, we're going (laughs) to kill more people. 
<laughs> because killing people is bad that doesn't really make sense and so it was pretty uh pretty much a pacifist about about things um and then my dad and stepmom took me out to washington dc to visit prospective colleges and my stepmom's cousin was vice president cheney's liaison to the military at the time so an oh, 06 wow. yeah an 06 colonel in the army um comes and picks us up from our hotel and i'm expecting him to like drive up in a black sedan with like a black suit and like black sunglasses you know and a mic in his ear and he rolls Men up. in black in real life yeah exactly he rolls up to our hotel lobby in his blue westphalia vanagon <laughs> i mean and um as a 16-year-old surfer who drives a yellow Westphalia van again in high school, I'm like, wait, this is this man is like me, not like man in black. <laughs> what is going on here? We are alike. <laughs> yeah. Turns out this guy is uh, different than I imagined. So we go to his house for dinner. This is the first time that I'm meeting him. And he turns out to be this super thoughtful, really great guy. You know, he graduated from West Point and has spent his career in the army. But he's talking about when he was a junior officer helping to negotiate and uh, codify the Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty, where, you know, the nuclear weapons in the world got reduced by a huge amount. Um, he talked about, you know, how the military in a democracy needs to be made up of a representative mix of the people involved in the country so that the military reflects the will of the people and the makeup of the people. And if you just had, you know, a certain type of person, you wouldn't have this round, democratically controlled, responsive military. Um, so it kind of opened my mind. And I started thinking about the my grandfather who'd served in World War II and my other grandfathers who'd served in World War II and my uncle who served in Vietnam and just thinking that they were all great guys and they had a sense of service and a sense of duty and a sense of responsibility and, um, confidence that i really admired and so thought you know it'd be pretty cool to join the military and learn leadership in that context and hopefully serve in that context as well so um that was like the military side of my uh upbringing if you will and and education and then on the other hand my major at berkeley was an inter interdisciplinary major called development studies which was about economic and political development uh, in a global context. So I focused on India and got to take courses about the political, economic, and um, cultural dynamics that arise as a nation develops. And so this was this really rich, deep conversation about what does development even mean? You know, yeah. from our Western American perspective, it means increasing GDP and you know, reducing maternal death rates, um, even though like the U.S. is not in the top 10 in terms of maternal mortality on mm -hmm. child delivery. Like I think Russia is even better than the U.S., um, which is crazy to say right now, considering what's going on. <laughs> That's very true. <laughs> but like um, these questions of, of what does it mean to be a developed country and um all of the systems that have come into place after World War II when there's this big push to develop Europe uh, in reconstruction of World War II and the 
establishment of Bretton Woods and the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank and um, the 80s and shock doctrine where uh, there were agents from the World Bank who went to countries and the International Monetary Fund and said, hey, you're in debt to us. We'll forgive your debt if you restructure your economic regulations so that our companies can come in and establish businesses and then create a ton of value and export it to our economies, basically. Hmm. And a lot of these governments where that happened just kind of went from bad to worse because they didn't have economic sovereignty anymore. They were just totally beholden to the IMF and the World Bank. And so then it created all this instability. And arguably that's where, you know, Wahhabist extremists extremism came from and while i'm in college that's the conflict that's going on is the invasion of iraq in 2003 when i'm a senior in high school to the iraq and afghanistan wars that are going on and i have friends who are in them and are dying um, while i'm in college and so i read a an article by naomi klein in uh, harper's about the reconstruction effort in Iraq and how the neoconservative politicians have approached the question of how are we going to reconstruct Iraq after we win the war? It's like, undoubtedly we're going to win the war, but how are we going to win the long game? Mm -hmm. And all the conventional army advisors are saying, we're going to need a million man army in there running a state to help them get through it. And the, neoconservatives in charge including Rumsfeld um, Cheney uh, Wolfowitz, Bremer they're all saying yeah we're just going to let private industry do it and so they declare these economic uh, free trade zones and we then watch an insurgency arise because the people in Iraq had been working for state run governments like they made soap and toilet paper in Iraq and they got paid, you know, a livable wage. And sure, there was a despot, but it was like, at least they fed their families and they were relatively safe. When, when the neocons came in and said like, nope, you can't unionize. Um, this will be a free trade zone and you'll get to work for this much or you can go somewhere else. They said, okay, give us the right to organize or we're going to join the insurgency. And the response was, yeah, no. So they joined the insurgency. <laughs> and, and in your head, you're like, what? I've, I've been learning about all of this and I see it happen in front of my eyes. I mean, it was simultaneous, you know, I'm telling the story from 15 years removed or so. Yeah. And, and it was actually like freshman year that I read that article and I just started to study this stuff. And I go to my Lieutenant Colonel, marine officer instructor and say like hey sir what do you what do you think about this you know this is really hard for me to understand and he's like well Goldbeck our our job is not to question these things our job is to show up and do what we're told I'm like but sir is, I mean isn't part of doing what we're told is like how do we win and helping the big picture get resolved and he's like well no that's not your job <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it really created a great sense of frustration in me because it seemed like we were ignoring a huge strategic um, consideration. You know, mm -hmm. how, how do you 
Yeah, which which we ultimately had to pay in you know blood and treasure over the next ten years or so. Yeah. Um, so, and luckily, no one that I knew really well um, got hurt and died, but one of one of my friends from high school did, and that was really rough. It was a, a year and a half later or so when that same lieutenant colonel was teaching class, and he said, like every day he would open class. With all right, what do we got? What's the news? Births, deaths, celebrations, announcements. What do we got? And like after a few weeks of him doing this, we kind of just took it in stride. That's how he opened the class. And mm-hmm. then my friend Trevor Winay got killed on a convoy in Iraq. Oh, and I was like, well, sir, um, you know, I'd like to remember Corporal Trevor Winay, who lost his life this week in Afghanistan in Iraq. And he was like, oh, boom, you know, and everyone in the class was like, whoa, like, yeah, well, I knew that guy. He was my sister's good friend and was a friend to me and it was very real. Um, So changed the tone of the class, I'm sure. Yeah. And we were talking about leadership and we were talking about um, the different concepts of leadership around the the different forms of leadership about um, positional authority versus experiential authority and um, how leadership is a, is an art and a science, um, how intelligence plays into how you lead a team. The more intelligent a group is, the more they're going to want to understand and um, therefore be involved in the decision-making process. And, um, that Maslow's hierarchy of needs plays into leadership that when people don't know if they're going to be safe and if they're going to have what they need to survive, um, their ability to be led to do something huge is maybe um, much less. But as they move up the hierarchy of needs, as Maslow describes it, and knows how to create their own security and they know how to create their own food and water and warmth and a uh, shelter and they know how to have a sense of community and they know how to have a um, connection with others that creates meaning in their life. And then they're able to self-actualize, which is this kind of like nebulous term, but in a way it's understand their, their deepest self. When they, when they achieve that, when they're able to self-actualize, they can go for much longer without having those needs on the lower part of the pyramid being met. Yeah. It's much more sustainable and much more self motivated. Mm -hmm. So like having these two realities that I was a part of the development studies on one side and ROTC on the other. And then I had this third reality, which was living in the student co-ops. So I lived with 35 other young men and women who were, everything from freshmen in college to postdoc grad students studying physics. And um, between the 36 of us, like there was a very large breadth of human experience, but we operated a mansion and enjoyed a huge quality of life for less than it costs anyone else to live in Berkeley and eat. Like it was a thousand bucks a month for food and a place to live. And, and it was that cheap because we ran the houses ourselves and we cooked the meals in a rotating work shift arrangement. And there were 
uh, officers within the house or managers within the house. So a president who ran meetings and a house manager who kind of made sure everything clicked together and a kitchen manager who put in food orders and a work shift manager who made sure that everyone was doing their five hours of work shift a week and a social manager who put together a party or two every month. And it was and a maintenance manager who made sure that broken things got fixed either by themselves or with the help of a central resource at the central office that uh, did a handyman and repair work throughout all the, I think 28 houses that were co-ops throughout the, the campus area and wow. um, yeah it was sounds it was awesome. really organized and it and it started in world war ii because the student housing was all taken up for military officer training and so the kids that didn't qualify because they were foreign or they were disabled um had to figure out some way to live affordably and they copied this student housing cooperative model that came out of uh england and then it's been going strong ever since and theoretically, the, the students own the, the assets of the cooperative, but the shares roll over as soon as they move out. So it's not like they get any economic value out of them. But it just, uh, it was this third deep experience where I was house president a lot of the times, work shift manager one semester, but I got fired because uh, I would wait until the last minute to publish the work shift schedules. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, I was uh a chef which was awesome i got to learn how to cook for 35 people uh by my senior year oh, and then wow. i'd do things like intensive kitchen clean and um you know bathroom cleans and whatever um so it was a great experience in collective operation of uh, of a shared reality and when yeah. we worked together it was like we were a family and we had a great time uh, for really low cost. So awesome that you were a chef for a little bit. Do you have a favorite meal that you cooked for everyone? Yeah, my favorite thing to do was to cook Indian food for the 36 of us. And that meant that I would take the silverware off of the serving table and everyone had to use their hands. <laughs> <laughs> and I loved, um, you know, experiencing eating food with your hands because it's like you're engaging a whole nother sense mm -hmm. and the experience becomes even richer and it almost tastes better and i would do things like um aloo gobi curries and uh chicken tikka or chicken tikka masala or chana tikka masala and then rice and typically it was a a veggie dish uh protein a veggie protein and then a meat protein and then a carb um, so it would be three hours of work wow. prepping for 36 people, but then your work shift was done and you got to listen to awesome music and put on, you know, dinner yeah. afterwards. So it was a great way to knock out the work shift hours. That's so awesome. Did anyone else ever make you eat with your hands or that was just a Frank Goldbeck thing? <laughs> that was a Frank Goldbeck thing. I mean, <laughs> in Berkeley, there's tons of great Indian food. And so if you go out and get Indian food, you get to eat with your hands if you're down. Uh, and being that there's a lot of Indian kids at Cal, um, I had some dorm mates freshman year who were like, oh, what are you doing with a fork? No, you eat it with your hands. Just don't use your left hand. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. So you have these three intersecting worlds and mm. you join the army, you go through Navy. the Marines, Navy. Yeah. 
and you go through the Marines, you don't like it. And it doesn't like me, might be more accurate, but it doesn't like you. <laughs> Not a good match. And so you go to the Navy, and what happens there? Oof. Yeah. Um, and I think Teresa is a big part of the story, too, which I'd okay. love to weave in if that's all right. Yeah. Yeah. So Teresa's my wife, and she was in the Navy, too. And we met training this summer between freshman and sophomore year. So I was 18, she was 19. We're approaching the point where we will have known each other and been together longer uh, than we were alive before we met each other, which is pretty crazy. Um, yeah, but that's insane. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's uh, good. Yeah, it's it's pretty cool. Uh, this this June this July will be the halfway point. That's such a blessing. Um, yeah, man. Yeah. So she's an awesome human. And when she was in ROTC that summer and I was in ROTC, I was on track to be a Marine Corps officer and she was on track to be a surface warfare officer. So a ship driver in the Navy. And we would have these conversations about like what we were doing it for and why. And she and I both kind of felt that the military needed a well-rounded officer corps to represent that, um, diverse range of opinions and values that reflected the American people. And she also felt like maybe it wasn't the best fit for her, but she was going to go study abroad in France that next year. Well, so, so before she left for France, I visited my grandpa who was a world war II bomber pilot and then came home and sold produce. Uh, one of the big markets in Los Angeles uh, brokerages in Los Angeles. And then um, he retired to grow apples when he was done growing apples he retired to fermenting all different things at the apple ranch that our family owned and operated for four generations and yeah pretty cool los rios rancho in yucaipa near san bernardino um so fermenting's in your blood is what you're saying well, I was young when I was first exposed to it. Uh, I remember being like eight years old and my grandpa sharing fermented drinks across the bar. And at one point, this tall, scary guy walks in and my grandpa pours in this golden drink. And I watched this tall, scary guy take a one ounce care of this golden drink and go, that's pretty good. And my grandpa goes, you want another one? Grandpa pours in another one and guy drinks it and after drinking that second small little thimble full one ounce thimble full of mead he um, is laughing and smiling and telling stories and listening to my grandpa's stories and I'm I'm like that is a potion my grandpa just transformed that guy so I asked my grandpa (laughs) that's real magic Um, which I didn't mention but on the on the childhood side, my dad was a Imagineer at Disney. Oh, and, cool. Yeah, and before that, he was a a shift manager, you know, ride operator. And we'd go to the park, the Disneyland park, all the time. And I remember being little, and the magic just being fully wrought and fully all encompassing and immersive. And then as I got bigger, he would take us behind the scenes of the Indiana Jones ride and show us the controls that operated the ride and the cameras and the lights and that it was a complex elaborate theatrical operation Mm -hmm. that delivered that experience and 
on one hand, it was really cool because I knew the place intimately. But on the other hand, it kind of was a little disillusioning. It broke the magic on some level, right? Because yeah. I knew that the snake was not a real snake. And it was, in fact, uh, animatronic. So It was, was your Santa's not real moment. There, there was this there was this tension there yeah. that to do cool things you got to figure out how to make them work yeah. but to maintain the magic you've got to deliver it in a way that the audience doesn't necessarily know how it works and Fair and enough. the and the performer enjoys delivering the experience mm-hmm. that makes sense yeah. So when my grandpa poured that thimble full of mead, two thimble fulls of mead, and this scary, grumpy man turns into this laughing, friendly person, I'm like, there's no, ma- I mean, that is magic. There's no stagecraft in that. Like, I watched it just boom, happen. So I asked my grandpa, what, what is that drink? And he says, oh, it's an adult drink made from honey. It's mead. And I'm like, Oh, that sounds cool. <laughs> I like honey. Uh, I can't drink adult drinks, but how do I get my hands on that? So <laughs> that kind of began the awareness of what mead was. And um, when we fast forward to the summer after freshman year, after meeting Teresa at the training for ROTC, I go up to my grandpa and grandma's house and I help them clean out the attic in the garage. And after a day of looking at ancient family albums and all kinds of cool you know experiences from a life well lived into this little corner where there's this white box that i recognize from my grandpa's old winery and we open it up and there's a bottle of his raspberry wine and a bottle of his uh, grape wine and a bottle of his apple wine and bottle of pear wine and we get through 11 bottles and then the 12th bottle, I pull out the last bottle in the case, and it's his last bottle of mead. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I say, Pop, this is your mead. And he says, oh, yeah. And he's getting pretty old at this point. Like, mm-hmm. you know, that's kind of his typical response or kind of these one-word answers. And so I go, can I take this up to school with me? And he goes, I'm not going to drink it. (laughs) (laughs) So he sends me off to school with it. And um, Teresa comes out to visit me at Berkeley before she goes off to France and helps me move into this co-op. The first weekend that this co-op is shared with Teresa and these wonderful humans will be like my family for the next three years. And that last night of her visit, we open this bottle of mead and it's the evening and it's just like beyond my wildest dreams. It is like drinking sunshine in a bottle. And yeah. And the feeling that trees and I have had of just like young love and, you know, all of the excitement Mm -hmm. of a whole world at our fingertips. Uh, We're literally like holding hands and taking the stairs two at a time. And there's a sense that, like, if we could bottle this feeling and share it with the world, like, that would make the world a better place because the beauty of this moment would be accessible to everybody. And so we we then open the mead and drink it, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is it. Like, this is that feeling. This is the golden hour uh, captured. And Is that your first mead mirth moment? That's a, Yes, that was my first time drinking mead. 
And, and Teresa always laughs and says, you know, it just tasted like a pretty good drink to me. <laughs> <laughs> but to me, it was, you know, uh, like I was eight to uh, 19, so 11 years of like dreaming, right? And I'd read Beowulf at this point. I'd yeah. read Lord of the Rings and I'd read like all of these uh, epic stories about Mead and um, the hero and heroine's journey. Mm-hmm. And um, here it was, this this potion. So we uh, we said our goodbyes. She went off to France. I got to study sophomore year and um, she came back. I got to visit her in France over uh, winter break and like experience a French New Year's where we ate uh, boar and mm-hmm. um, like had a dinner party that lasted like seven hours on New Year's wow. Eve, which was amazing. And like they played these games where they jump up at the table and start slumping, stomping or slapping their hands on the table like they're horses at a horse race and someone's <laughs> calling out like turns and everyone at the table is doing the turns and then you crawl under the table and jump over the table and like just all kinds of silliness uh that's totally okay and it's like old people and young people are all doing it together and just having a great time that's and awesome. yeah it's you know was a meet a part of that party uh, not yet. So not yet. Okay. Not yet. Yeah. Um, so we hadn't made our first meet until she came back from France the next summer, gotcha. and okay. we wanted to get more meat in our life, but we couldn't find it anywhere. So we researched how to do it online, and this was like relatively early days of the internet. You know, Google had come out something like three or four years before this happened. Um, gotcha. So finding a recipe was possible, but difficult, and ultimately, we like put it together ourselves after reading a couple of references and um, checked it against each other's sanity. Like Teresa is listening as I'm reviewing our steps and she says, well, is any of this going to kill us? And I'm like, well, the research that I have says that as long as it's over 3% alcohol, it won't have any bacteria that could kill us. (laughs) And she's like, so maybe, Well, I mean, the reference was legit, so we we put our faith in it. And then, uh, you know, she's like, "Is this gonna make us blind?" And I'm like, "No, uh, that that happens when you distill wine or or beer, and then you do it the wrong way, and then you get these uh, alcohols that are naturally present in wine and beer, but are super condensed, and it's like menthol and other." fusel alcohols that make people go blind and we shouldn't have any of those in concentration enough to actually make us blind and she's like oh okay that makes sense (laughs) (laughs) so we're like doing risk assessment you know which is like something we learned in the military um but we come up with a with a, a plan that seems feasible and get the equipment and the ingredients and go down to the the berkeley bowl uh food co-op and pick up like giant jugs of honey and some tea and some lemon and some yeast and we make our first batch of mead and uh i go and check on it every day and it finishes and at the time berkeley was having a about these trees that were going to get cut down which are like some of the last old growth um oaks on campus and there were people that were living in the trees and this little site where this was happening was like 400 yards from my house. So 
when we bottled the meat, I like taste it. I'm like, oh, this is not at all like my grandpa's meat. <laughs> and like, I try to like pour it for some friends, and I'm like, yeah, not gonna finish that glass. <laughs> and I'm like, darn it. Well, someone has to drink this mead. So I like walk some bottles out to the people living in the trees, and they are stoked, man. <laughs> free alcohol let's free do alcohol. it yeah well i've been literally living in a tree and pooping in a bucket <laughs> <laughs> so okay. um so we got through a lot of bottles that way and then i gave out the rest as christmas gifts and we still have like three of them left because different oh, wow. family members have given them back to us over oh, time wow. <laughs> that's so awesome do Funny, you plan yeah. on trying any of those I do have three of them, and I think, you know, now might be one of the times, you know, 11 years into this, the recent reformation of the company into a for-benefit corporation and um, with our regenerative business trajectory, so that could hey. be a very cool experience. It only gets better with time, right? Well, we used <laughs> to think that, but the edit I would make to that statement now is, if it's decent, it gets better with time. If it's bad, there's a chance it could get better with time, but there's also a chance that it's just going to be bad <laughs> forever. That's, that's fair. So <laughs> yeah. you're so going back to the uh, Navy, you're okay. still in the Navy during this first brew, right? Well, so yeah, get out of college, um, make the first brew in college, uh, oh, so okay. junior year of college, and gotcha. then through junior and senior year make a number of additional batches and they get more and more popular we're doing short batches by this point where it's like a fast ferment um using lemon and ginger alongside it and so we can like drink it in like two weeks uh though the yeast population was pretty rich and the stomach aches afterwards were decent um so we've definitely evolved since then but the uh, the mead was getting drunk quickly like we would have parties and five gallons would get drunk in a night and my co-founder one of my co-founders of golden coast me joe colangelo who's in the navy rotc program with me was mm -hmm. like at one of those parties and he's like frank people love this stuff they will give us money for it and i'm like that's crazy and he's like no dude <laughs> that's how american business works people want something and they give people money to get it i'm like huh yeah okay <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> That's cool. So, so that was where the seed was kind of planted, and then, um, then I I graduate, you know, fail OCS officer candidate school, but graduate from Berkeley and get my commission in the Navy. So I was a junior officer on board that ship, and we didn't really know what we were doing, but we were committed to getting the mission accomplished because that was kind of the culture, and we uh, made it over there safely. And when we were doing some offloading of the Marines, we ran the ship aground um, off the coast of Kuwait. And, so just yeah. to clarify, you literally hit land with yeah. your ship. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was, it was underwater land, but uh, okay. had we known what we were doing and like the, the basic rules of safe navigation had been followed. There is a, there is a manual that every ship has and that every sailor who's in charge of driving the ship is supposed to know and it's called the nav dorm the naval operations readiness manual and in it are these like rules about operating in shoal water which is water that's shallow enough to crash into the land uh, at the gotcha. bottom of the water 
Um, and when you're within like three nautical miles of it, you're supposed to have like two times the number of watch standards on standards on board to make sure that you don't run into these things. But we just waived that rule. We just decided that that rule was not important. And that was approved by like the operations officer, the XO, the CEO, the Commodore, the Commodore staff. Um, but and we, you're an officer too at this point, right? Yeah, I'm an unqualified surface warfare officer. So like I'm learning okay. how to be a surface warfare officer, but I have just passed a board of, of inspection to see if I'm qualified to stand as uh combat information center watch officer so sickbo and my job was to back up the officer of the deck and make sure that we were operating the ship safely and accomplishing the mission and so you know my job is to supervise my team and make sure they're all doing their job but i didn't know that at the time like my training it's best to take a laissez-faire attitude with your watch team and i'm like okay so when it's my turn on watch and we're like they're a hovercraft you know giant hovercraft pulling in and out of our ship uh, with like tanks and stuff on them to land them on the beach and then go participate in these exercises with Kuwait. Um, I, instead of supervising my team and making sure that we're all doing what we're supposed to be doing, I am on the radios talking to the hovercraft and like trying to coordinate the faster offload of, of the troops and equipment, which is totally not my job. Like there's an E5 that's supposed to be doing that. And I'm an O one, you know, like I'm supposed to be making sure that the whole team is doing their job. And so when the hovercraft calls up the bridge and goes, Hey, we need you having some speed over ground. And like, uh, we have three knots ordered up. Um, we're not moving over ground though. Like GPS shows that we're not, we don't have any speed. Mm-hmm. And so then the navigator is like, Colbeck, what do you have for speed over ground? Uh, on the radio between the bridge and the combat and I radio back uh, zero, sir. And he's like, he replies like, come up to the bridge wing. <laughs> <laughs> so I come up to the bridge wing and he's like, see that plume of muddy water? I'm like, yes. He's like, I think that means we ran aground. And I'm oh. like, oh no. <laughs> That's bad. <laughs> uh, and the captain's on the bridge at this point and he's like, what? And we're like, sir, or I think navigator and his officer of the deck said, sir, I think we've run the ship around. And he like goes over to the charts and he's like, oh goodness. And the, the person who'd been plotting our position had just like plotted our position in the same place for like 15 minutes and hadn't reported it to anyone. Huh. Um, and yeah, dude, like there are just so many levels of failure. It was Yeah, it absurd. sounds like there is multiple like avenues of failure that was happening yeah i mean the whole team's job is to make sure the ship's operating safely and to follow these rules that are put in place to ensure that happens and we you know i i think it was an early warning of a systemic problem that came up more and more later and spent the next like two years in the shipyards fixing all of these things that had been deferred because we're supposed to be getting ready for this congressionally mandated inspection uh, about the state of the ships in the Navy, but it's not a surprise inspection. And so like jobs are on the line all up and down the chain of command. And this is an inspection for the ship that you guys brought back to San Diego, right? Or is it correct. multiple ships you're repairing? No, for the one ship that we brought back to San Diego. Gotcha. It's like okay. this inspection that happens every 10 years or every five years. And okay. 
we hadn't had it for longer than we were supposed to. And so we needed to get it done. But it was a stressful time. We were working like 12, 14, 16 hour days. And it all comes back to me because um, I was learning how to work hard. And I was learning that stuff gets done when people do it the right way. And um, that, that takes leadership, but it also takes dedication um, and, and talent. And we kept on pushing and kept on accepting nothing but the best uh, for each step along the way. So we, um, man, so we would start working like 12 hours a day, 14 hours a day, 16 hours a day, five days a week, six days a week, and then seven days a week. And it got to the point like how was that on you like personally like physically like yeah i've done 80 hour 100 hour work weeks and it's not not fun for me no uh and and you know in the military you're literally owned like if you don't want to show up for work and they decide to press charges you can end up in jail (laughs) yeah yeah it's not self-inflicted yeah yeah uh in india they call your time in the military your indenture Mm. um which i think is accurate and not something that i was told when i was younger um (laughs) but you know it makes me appreciate the folks who do sign up and serve a whole career of of military time yeah um so it was rough you know uh there are days when I would like pull up to the ship and I'd be like, okay, when I look up from my steering wheel, please show me that it's on fire. Oh, nope, not on fire. <laughs> I have to go to work today. How's yeah. Teresa taking your hard work schedule? She's awesome. I mean, she grew up in a hardworking family, so she understands that it needs to get done. And all four of her older siblings had been in the military as well. Um, so she was supportive, extremely supportive. But I would come home sometimes and just like get back to the house and just lay on the floor and not talk for like an hour and she'd be like um i don't think this is how we want to live our lives so i i would come home and lay on the floor and not talk and she was like so what if instead of this you had all of the time all of the money and all in the world what would you do i was like that is the best question i've ever heard in my life wifey and she's like well you should take time, come up with the answer to that. And then let's talk about it. So like that question kicked around for a few days. And and I was like, well, the answer is clear. I would make meat and share it with people. And I would farm and live in community. So yeah, that's what I want to do. And then she, um, she asked me about it. And I said, yep, I, I want to make meat and share it with people, farm and live in community. And she said, all right, that sounds good let's figure out how to make a living and do it. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So that's how she dealt with that time. So from, from the decision of like wanting to make me and you're still in the Navy and getting to opening golden coast, what was that transition? Like what happened there? Yeah. So, um, so the chief engineer on the ship, got uh, seizures and I had to replace him and I did a good job. And so the last like couple months while I was on the ship and the chief engineer got replaced and my replacement showed up, I got to kind of, 
um, put together these ideas about a business plan, um, just like sketch it out. And then I, I transferred off the ship after we passed the inspection successfully and uh, was going to go to a second ship. But in between ships, I went snowboarding with my best buddy growing up, Brian Anderson, and uh, destroyed my knee. I, I blew it up on this huge jump. Um, the second time I, I jumped it, the snow was just a bit sticky, and I landed right at the transition on my front foot. And that knee was already a little problematic with some sprains and stuff playing lacrosse in college. And um, it just exploded like and I couldn't put any weight on it and uh, get down to the bottom of the hill and it's totally swollen up and uh, go to a sports medicine doc the next day and they're like, mm, that doesn't look like a sprain. That looks like an injury. <laughs> I'm like, I'm going to be okay, right? I'm going to be able to go back to the Navy. I got a ship I need to get to. And they're like, yeah, you know, I want to get that looked at by your doctor. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, so had a totally torn ACL and a totally atrophied leg um, because I was off of it because it was so painful and um, needed to get it operated on to get it repaired. So didn't have to go to my second ship, got an office job. And unlike my first job where, you know, work, work days were half days, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., um, if not longer. Um, work days on the, at the office job were like 8 a.m to 3 p.m or 4 p.m um oh. so like an eight hour work day you know yeah and, a little normal schedule uh, yeah for the first time but i had all this free time because my wife was working 12 hour shifts and sometimes working night shifts and um that meant that like i had all this time to and energy to put towards a business plan and coming up with a product and uh making golden coast meat a reality and luckily my co-founder joe colangelo super enthusiastic about the deal and we had a party where we invited our third co-founder or Praveen excuse me Ramaneni and before he got signed up we had him drink a bunch of meat and you know told him how smart he was and how we really needed someone to help us handle the finance and strategy and he was like a consultant at Deloitte after undergrad after like getting a double major at Berkeley and a chancellor of the list you know uh, like super high marks and so He's like, all right, I'll do it. So, <laughs> so the three of us founded the company in October of 2010 um, and made our first batch in October of 2010 under a custom crush agreement. And when we were um, up and licensed, or I got out of the, the Navy in May of 2011, and we were up and licensed and running in June of 2011. Oh, wow. So yeah. what was the first batch that you guys made? Yeah, we settled on an orange blossom, uh, semi-sweet, uh, petalant style mead that we called Mirth in a Bottle. Okay. And it was floral and jasmine and citrus, like skin, fruit, and uh, blossoms. It was sweet up front with a tart citrus mid palette and then this we use mantra shea um and we did seven different batches of this recipe and the first one was like it, it landed as a sweet dessert wine around three bricks on the finish and um 12 alcohol batch number eight um and we produced that out in ramona everything else had been produced in valley center at triple b ranches but we partnered with um 
a small winery that's not there anymore, Hacienda de los Rosas, where uh, there's this really cool um, old veteran who liked us and he let us use his barn with dirt floors to put our tanks in and <laughs> make our mead. <laughs> um, there was one point where like my wife had just had her first daughter and we needed to go out to check on the badge at like 10 p.m. And so my business partner, Joe, and I went out there with my wife and daughter and um, she's like sitting in this cold barn with our newborn knitting a blanket and joe and i are cleaning a tank so that we can transfer one batch into the other tank and um it's like 10 30 or 11 at night and it's like four in my trunks because i'm inside this tank cleaning it um and there's no it's insane. And I'm in there right there. <laughs> that was epic. Um, and Joe's using his cell phone flashlight because this barn is so unfinished that there's not even lights in it. Um, so he's using his cell phone flashlight so that I can see the tank and clean it. And, and he's holding his flashlight over the edge and peering over the, the side. And he's like, you know, Frank, if the universe is truly infinite, where somebody is paying to do what I am doing right now. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's good. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was epic. It was just totally memorable. Thanks for tuning in, and be sure to check in next week for round two of Frank's Journey in Mead.